Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. After a set of COVID pandemic funding programs expired, millions of Americans got an unwelcome surprise when money available for low-income food help suddenly dropped. And there's continued pressure to cut food supplements further. Those programs help a disproportionate percentage of Native Americans, many of whom, according to one survey, are going without food to feed others in their household. We'll learn about ways people are coping with the changes to government food aid and what people can expect in the near future. That's all coming up after the news. National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. This is a critical week in Guatemala's fragile democracy, as that country's outgoing president and its beleaguered president-elect meet to talk about the transition of power. With the eyes of the world on the Central American country of Guatemala, many of its millions of indigenous citizens are getting ready to take action against what they call a coup attempt by corrupt justice officials. From Guatemala, Maria Martin has this report. Outgoing President Alejandro Chamate says he wants a transparent and efficient government transition. But the reformist president-elect Bernardo Arevalo said in a television interview right before the start of the talks that there's a contradiction between protocol and Chamate. Matei's failure to condemn his Justice Department's attempts to disqualify his anti-corruption semilla or seed party. Yo esperaría que el presidente se manifestara muy clara y muy contundentemente. I would hope the president would come out strongly against these spurious legal actions, Cesar Evalo. Meanwhile, pro-democracy protests continue in Guatemala City and throughout the country calling for an end to government interference with the election process and what protesters think is an attempt to block the country's newly elected president-elect from taking power. This is just the start until the new president takes power on January 14th, says the indigenous mayor of Nebach in Quiche. If they don't stop these illegal actions, he says, indigenous groups will step up their protests. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. The Environmental Protection Agency has announced $2.5 million in grants to three Alaska Native corporations. They're part of a $20 million appropriation from Congress to clean up contaminated lands that were conveyed to Native corporations under the 1971 Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. The announcement came when EPA Administrator Michael Regan made the final stop of his Alaska tour last week in Fairbanks. Regan says this first round of funding barely addresses the problem. Just the breadth of contaminated lands, contaminated conveyed lands, is astounding. And, and so in addition to this $20 million, we had a lot of discussions with local leaders uh, about how we could devise strategies to acquire resources from other programs. Regan also visited Utkiagvik last week, where Utkiagvik Inupiat Corporation is based. It will receive $600,000 to remove asbestos and other contaminants from the old U.S. Navy Arctic Research Center, as well as clean up an oil spill. Pearl Brower, president of UIC, says this site is just a small portion of lands in the region that need cleanup, but called it a good first step. She said she looks forward to a time when her children and grandchildren can subsist off of clean land and water. 
Senator Lisa Murkowski, who championed the legislation, is also working to find other sources of federal money to clean up more Native corporation lands, which she calls an injustice perpetrated by the federal government. It thwarts their ability to fulfill the promise of ANCSA, was that they would be able to utilize their lands for the betterment of their people. But when your lands are contaminated and you can't access them for development, much less berry picking, that's not keeping our promise. The Tyonic and Unalashka corporations will each receive a million dollars in funding. Tyonic will use the money to inventory and clean up contaminants in the Aniskin Peninsula. The Unalashka Corporation will target pollution from World War II, removing soil contaminated with PCBs as well as sampling soil and water at a warehouse in Dutch Harbor. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets, or pillows around your baby. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. America Calling. Changes in the most widely used federal food assistance program just took effect that will cut benefits for three-quarters of a million people. And more restrictions are coming in a month. That's on top of the rollback earlier this year of emergency COVID pandemic benefits for the Supplemental Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. Native Americans rely on SNAP at a higher rate than any other group, and many are caught off guard by the sudden reduction in the assistance they need to feed their families. We'll go over updates to federal food assistance and get a snapshot of programs available for Native people who are eligible. Join us with your questions and comments. Do you or the people in your community have enough to eat? Are you giving up food so someone else in your family can eat? Or are you just wondering what help is available to put a healthy meal on the table? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's meet today's guests. Joining us from Spokane, Washington is Tony Stanger McLaughlin. She's the CEO of the Native American Agriculture Fund and the first Native board member of Feeding America. She's from the Colville Tribe. Hi, Tony. Welcome back to NAC. Hi, thank you for having me. Speaking with us from Santa Fe, New Mexico is Carmela Martinez. She's the director of the Income Support Division at the New Mexico Human Services Department, and she's San Alfonso Pueblo. Thanks for joining us today, Carmela. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you as well. And joining us from Denver, Colorado, is Adelie Rivas. She's Food Share and Indigenous Agriculture Support for Spirit of the Sun, 
She's Gush Gatan Chena. Adelaide, welcome to Native America Calling. Yik Pena, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Tony, let's start off today and talk more about the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, aka SNAP. What is the status of the program right now for people who receive food benefits? Well, first of all, I want to say that I, the Native American Agriculture Fund and our organization, we administer an annual grant funding cycle, and that includes projects that sometimes are based on improving or removing the barriers that Native American producers have found in the past. As the largest Native American nonprofit that exists in that agricultural space, we also have the fortune to have a voice in Washington, D.C., in our nation's capital as new policy changes or administrative changes occur related to any type of food and, uh, and nutrition. Um, but as we enter into the next Farm Bill, these discussions are even more important. And so we, with our sister organizations that we work with, are trying to unify the voice of Indian Country and also hearing from Indian Country for the first time on what are the issues that are impacting you, how do these changes impact you or your community, both to the individual basis, but also we love to hear from tribal governments on how we can then bring their voices to Washington with us. And so in doing so, um, eventually I was asked to serve on Feeding America's Board, which is the largest nonprofit that exists in the United States today, but also the largest organization that works in this hunger um, action space. And as a board member, I've been able to learn and educate my fellow board members and staff at Feeding America who've grown exponentially in this past year in their commitment to Indian country and fostering those relationships. Many of them had existed in certain communities for a very long period, but not everyone knows that they do often have relationships um, that exist between various food banks and tribal, what's called FDIPR, offices or commodity offices, food distribution in Indian country is a program that is administered through the farm and uh, the um, FNS food and nutrition program within the United States Department of Agriculture. And they oversee the administration of the funds that come from uh, the annual budget and also other budget uh, opportunities, uh, including the farm bill that occur. The funding then goes to the department and the department uh, in the largest part of the farm bill financially okay. is that those SNAP programs. And those are all, um, some have set under attack and under attack because like you said, there's been reductions. Um, there was an increase during the pandemic in assistance and that has been reduced where the average per day to feed yourself is now $6. Um, that reduction was an average of $82. And for some adults, means that they're no longer able to feed themselves. They have to pick who's going to get fed in their family or they have to decide what meal they're going to go without. Okay, so if I'm uh, the head of a household in a Native community right now who's been reliant on SNAP benefits, what do I need to do? What do I need to know specifically so that I can feed my family? So one of the things to know is... Um, hopefully, you have access to some type of smartphone. If you can't, um, find resources where you can get that type of information. If you're in a tribal community, uh, I would start with if you have a food assistance or TANF office on your reservation, 
uh, seek out um, information from them, but to know that there are assistance programs that exist. And even if, if you are, are working adult, you may still be able to qualify for some of this assistance. Uh, and then also look at the food pantries and other nonprofits or, or religious entities that exist in this space that also provide food assistance. Because in some communities, they all work very harmoniously together. The tribal government, um, churches, food pantries, um, food banks. And there's a list on Feeding America's website. There, you can. It's a one-stop shop for information. To, unfortunately, in very rural parts of the country, uh, we're still building those relationships. But your tribal government is somewhere that you should be able to go and find this type of information as well. Okay. Now, Tony, these, uh, these SNAP benefits specifically, um, they are, are, are going to be reduced to, to, I believe, what the benefit was before the pandemic hit. So in a sense, they're going back to, to what people were expecting four or five years ago. But the larger question, of course, is, I mean, what's driving the food crisis that we're seeing in so many Native communities that we've become so dependent on these food assistance programs across the board? I think inflation, um, that prior to that, dealing with supply chain issues with COVID, uh, natural and man-made disasters related to climate change, um, all of those combined to become the perfect storm for one of the largest increases in uh, food insecurity that we have had in recent decades. And we see that at Food Feeding America, um, most of the the um, new applicants coming into our customers at their food banks are working individuals. And sometimes they're two um, household working individuals and they still can't make ends meet. And so they're just needing that little bit to help them get over. And in Indian country, it's more people applying for their commodity program or for their SNAP program. So the benefits are being reduced and, um, the timing, it seems, is what has a lot of people uh, alarmed. And would you prefer that they hold off on this reduction? Or at some point, uh, is it logical that they did need to just reduce these numbers, these benefits back to what they were pre-COVID? I mean, what's your thought on that? Because obviously, um, it does seem to be a lot of political wrangling right now with regard to the budget and, and how these benefits and, and how the farm bill plays into that. Well, unfortunately, it's also the perfect storm in Congress for this conversation to become spearheaded and an active dialogue in, in multiple facets of, of uh, Congress. And that's that we are having debt ceiling conversations, we're having default conversations at the same time that we're asking for, and food, often food advocates are asking for a maintenance of the pandemic level assistance and in some cases an increase uh, especially as it relates to elder adults who are often impacted and utilize these systems so are making sure our elders are cared for but also our very young population but that those conversations and as we've gone through the past few farm bills they've been very heated in this area um, where it's the nutrition and assistance programs eating up a lot of the, the farm bill 
allocation and those calling for changes to the program to reduce the overall numbers. Um, for us as a society right now, I do think it's poor timing. A lot of individuals are dealing with rent increases, cost of food increases, transportation costs increasing because of inflation. To then uh, reduce the amount of funding, uh, add more uh, requirements that could impact as much as 750,000 people um, is not in the best interest of our society. But at the same time, we have accountability to other countries and to um, maintain maintenance of, of our government and our dollar value. So I see both sides of it, but I honestly think we could look at other solutions where other funding uh, mechanisms that occur in the budget cycle are what are other departments getting funded in that we can reallocate to this food space and help everyone as we get through this or restructure the way the programs are delivered. All right, Tony, we're going to have to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to ask you about some of these other food assistance programs beyond SNAP. There's also a program that a lot of folks are familiar with. Uh, it goes by the acronym WIC, which actually stands for Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. And of course, there's another Native-specific program that's referred to as FDPIR. It is the Food Distribution Program on Indian Reservations. That's a federal program. So we're going to talk more about uh, those other programs uh, with Tony, along with our other guests and anyone right now with a question or a comment. If you've got any concerns at all with regard to food benefits and how they impact you or your community, our phone lines are open 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call now. We'll get your comments. We'll get your questions on the air. Stay with us. We will be right back. Alaska officials just issued a list of all the Native people considered missing from that state and whether the case is considered suspicious. It's one of the developments from recent awareness campaigns designed to combat the issue of missing relatives. We'll get an update on progress and setbacks on the next Native America Calling. Support by AARP. Despite their service to our country, U.S. military vets, active duty service members, and their families are targeted by con artists significantly more than civilians and are 40% more likely to lose money than civilians. Vigilance is our number one weapon against fraud. You have the power to protect yourself. If an offer sounds too good to be true, it probably is. More at aarp.org slash vetsfraudnetwork. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about food safety programs like SNAP, WIC, FDPIR, and other tribal programs. The federal government is rolling back aid from the pandemic era. At the same time, benefit eligibility is tightening. So you can join us by calling in. Tell us how has access to food and food assistance programs changed for you recently or your community? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call to share your comments on the air, 1-800-996-2848. And online right now, we have Tony Stanger McLaughlin. She is with the Native American Agriculture Fund and also a board member of Feeding America. And Tony, 
I, I want to ask you more about some of these other programs in addition to SNAP, WIC, and FDPIR specifically. How are those programs affected, and do people need to be concerned about changing eligibility requirements or reduced benefits, perhaps? Yeah, it depends on what state you're in as well. And if your tribe is in this administering their own programs or that they're in a cooperation or they don't, your tribe doesn't do it at all and you can utilize state resources. You have the opportunity to pick often um, if you're going to use your tribe versus the state. And um, so every state that administers these has the right to administer them a little bit differently. Um, so that's one thing to know that it depends on where you live or where you're applying, how you might be impacted. But as far as Native American use in the WIC program, and that's for um, women and children and pregnant women, one of the things we realized this last year was there hasn't been an impact report or a use report, anything related to how many Native Americans, what type of Native American women um, are our children are accessing these programs since 2002 and so this year we were able to work with a partner um, called frac and they were able to uh, get funding from the department of agriculture food and nutrition service which is the usda um, office that administers these programs they were able to get some funding from them to redo a study and do it from a native perspective. So we'll have an advisory body that gets to work on that survey study and find out how many Native Americans are using this because in 1998, there was 121,000 across the country that were utilizing the program. We wanna make sure that tribes have the right to administer all their programs and services to protect their citizens, but also in many areas, because they're the largest municipality, administer programs to those within their community that choose to utilize the tribe as the government body that they go to versus the state. Now, that's one of the largest tools that we see in the future of taking control of these programs and services, making sure they work in our communities. But the other part, FDIPR, that program, and which is Often in your res community, that's where you get commods or commodities. And that's where a procurement program exists within another part of USDA to gather food to put into these programs. Some of the things that we're advocating with our partners like the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative and the Intertribal Agriculture Council and the Native Farm Bill Coalition are to include measures in the next Farm Bill that will make sure we can regionalize these food procurement systems, make them easier, have more native producers in the system, have the ability to include more traditional foods into that program. But right. uh, oftentimes the commodities are just well known for their cheese, but it can be more depending <laughs> on what community you're in. <laughs> well, you can make all kinds of great meals at home with some of those commodities if you are creative for sure. Well, Tony, thank you for sharing those additional resources and also explaining the importance of getting good timely data with regard to food insecurity in our Native communities. And with that, let's go ahead and bring Carmela Martinez into the conversation now. She's in New Mexico and she's with the New Mexico Human Services Department. And Carmela, thank you again for joining us, and please give us a little bit more details with regard to what you're seeing there in New Mexico. Who's most affected by federal food assistance there in your state? 
Right. So thank you for having me. Um, again, um, Income Support Division administers all of the public assistance programs for the state of New Mexico. Um, and currently, as of September, we're servicing 1,034,001 unduplicated individual clients across all of our programs. Now, while a little over a million participants doesn't sound very high, we only have 2.1 million in the entire state which means that we're servicing close to 51% of the population. We're ranked um, number two in poverty for the nation. What that translates to for food and food insecurity, one in seven people in New Mexico are hungry. Of those, one in five are children. Um, so in uh, New Mexico, we service a high volume of SNAP or Supplemental Nutritious Assistance Program participants. We have 4,000 478,795 New Mexicans receiving SNAP assistance, of which approximately 17% are Native Americans. Um, New Mexico has 21 tribes, nations, and pueblos um, scattered throughout the state. Some of them um, are closer to metro areas and don't have the same infrastructure challenges with transportation and broadband um, as other areas do. Um, so. Because we do have such a high food insecurity rate and poverty rate in New Mexico, um, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has created a task force, which is um, a food initiative. And uh, we work very closely with all of our tribes, nations, and pueblos to see how we can better support access um, to services as well as retention to services. Um, because we know that it really is critical that we're getting food on the table. And this is really a multi-pronged approach. You can't do this with just a SNAP program alone, correct? So there are the FDIPR programs that we work with our tribes on, um, education uh, programs. Um, we have the emergency food bank programs um, where we've received additional monies through the federal government to really make sure that we're targeting our tribal populations. Um, we also deliver food from the USDA to different schools, and we have approximately 36 different BIE and community schools that we deliver to. Um, because we know that if kids are hungry, parents are hungry, right, and vice versa. And really, it's about creating a safety net of programs and being able to get the information about those programs out there, again, for access and retention. Um, but you can't do it alone with just one program. And so it's been wonderful to have the collaboration. Um, the Native population has been great at coming to the table. Um, so we can really work out those challenges and see how we can provide that better support. Thank you, Carmela. And going back to the, the pandemic, I mean, what did you see there in New Mexico with regard to how Native families were coping with food insecurity issues? And ha have things improved at all now that here we are, we're going now almost two years since, since the worst of its past. And uh, do you see any, any bright spots on the horizon with regard to these issues? Um, I think it's complicated, as has already kind of been stated um, by the you know previous guests. So in New Mexico, we saw an average loss of at least $95 per household um, with the loss of the emergency benefit. Um, and a majority of our people did stay on. We have not seen a large decrease in our roles. Um, and during the pandemic, about 19% increase in our SNAP. Um, participation with our customers. So we did see that the need was there. We have not seen um, a significant decrease in those numbers. So we do know that the need is still there to support um, all the constituents. Um, we did see that there were some deserts that were appearing, particularly in our native areas. So we worked very hard with our community action groups that actually provide um, emergency food boxes, 
senior commodities programs and made sure that we increased the amount of sites that we were able to provide um, this type of assistance to in our tribal areas. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's getting a lot better. I would say that, that our access and our services are getting better, which is the biggest role that I can play as a division. Um, but again, with things like inflation, um, it is really, really difficult to tackle uh, food insecurity with the rate of inflation right now. And Carmela, were you surprised at all uh, when this talk of of lowering the SNAP benefits when that when that came about, or, or did you were you kind of expecting it? We knew it was going to be on the horizon in speaking with us, Food Nutrition Services, which is uh, the USDA group that administers uh, the SNAP program. They were always pretty clear that it was on the horizon. Um, how it was going to be decommissioned, we were unsure. Um, and we did get that communication from them. And the first thing that we needed to do was how do we mitigate this? We knew that our seniors, our tribal area, and our kids were going to really be hurting. And how do we make sure that we provide those supports and make that, that the holes in that safety net as small and as tight as possible? Um, again, we looked at other funding sources that were out there. We went to legislators and were able to get some uh, funding there to help support and bridge that gap. Um, and it's really what we can do as a state within the federal parameters. Um, and again, we also advocate at the federal level as much as possible. Uh, we have meetings regularly and express our concerns in particular um, with such a high poverty and, and food insecurity rate in our state. This is really a mission for us to make sure that we're advocating at the federal level as well as the state level. And the uh, comment on the most recent farm bill really gives us an opportunity uh, to do that. Well, thank you, Carmela. And again, to, to dig a little bit deeper into the details of these changes coming to SNAP. Now, I, I know that there are some increases uh, in the ages of people that will be eligible and also with regard to whether or not they have children. Can you give us a little bit more details so any listeners that are currently uh, expecting SNAP benefits can be prepared for what's in store? Sure, not a problem. On June 3rd, 2023, uh, President Biden signed into law what's called the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. And in that, there were changes to the work program uh, associated with SNAP. Now, this particular work program is affectionately called ABOD, but what it stands for is Able-Bodied Adults Without Dependents. So this means that um, these are, are healthy individuals that don't have any type of disability preventing them from working and participating in the workforce, and they don't have any dependents in the home. Now, how is that defined? Um, as of uh, September 1st, the age range for that changed. So it was up to 49 years of age. It is now up to 50 years of age. Are, you are now considered a required to participate in this extra work program unless you meet another exemption. If you're pregnant, if you're disabled, if you have somebody in the home um, that is a minor, uh, along with a few other exemptions. Uh, veterans assistance. If you are a veteran, there's also certain exceptions. That's new. Okay. Um, effective October 1, 2023, the definition for an able-bodied adult is now uh, up to age 52 years of age, and the able-bodied adult definition in October of 24 moves up again in age to 54 years of age, which means that we're expanding the population of people that need to participate in this program. They did give us a few more exemptions at the federal level, 
but they are expanding the definition of people who have to participate. Now, if you fail to participate in the program, this is the big catch here. You can lose food stamp eligibility for a duration of time, at least a three-month lockout. So this really could impact the food insecurity in those households where there's an individual who fails to adequately participate in this program. And again, we've kind of broadened the definition of who needs to participate. So that really is something that's concerning. States do have the ability to apply for a waiver with the federal uh, uh, oversight. So in New Mexico, we we do have a federal waiver in place um, that we are currently reapplying for. So it's really important for people to understand whether or not their state requires um, participation as an able-bodied adult without dependents. Well, Carmela, this is really good information. Thank you for all those details. But it just it really goes to show that people are really going to have to pay attention and be aware of these different deadlines and such as regards to how these these benefits are going to change or these eligibility requirements are, are going to change. And Carmela, any idea of exactly how many people these eligibility changes will impact there in your state, New Mexico? Over approximately 30,000 individuals. Um, will most likely now fit this definition um, across the board and will continue to grow um, as, as the age limits increase as well. Um, again, New Mexico has a, a waiver right now through the end of the calendar year. If we receive um, an extension of that waiver, that would be great news for us because it would make sure that people are retained on that benefit. Otherwise, we'll be in communication with anyone who is now required to meet this work requirement 45 days prior to when they need to really be in compliance. Um, so it's really important, you know, we'll have news campaigns, we'll have social media campaigns, we'll send out information, we'll make cold calls to customers because it's really critical that they remain on benefits. There is information on the FNS.org, um, I have to get that correct website for you. There is information on the FNS website, which is Food and Nutrition Services. Um, that might be useful to customers out there, but it's really important that they know where they're getting their SNAP services from in their local state or um, tribal area, and that they are looking out for any communications there regarding the changes in this work program. All right. And Carmela, some people listening today might be thinking to themselves, well, able-bodied, able to work without dependents up to age 50, they think, well, geez, you know, I mean, that seems like an able-bodied middle-aged person. Why should they be be getting any of these benefits at this point if they're able to work and they don't have any dependents? What's your response to people who have that type of criticism or that type of skepticism with regard to how these eligibility requirements impact SNAP beneficiaries? Yeah, I would say it's, it's unfortunate um, that there is still a stigma with the support that's out there. Food stamps is an entitlement program, which means as long as you meet the income requirements, we're there to provide that support. And the majority of people are, that are receiving SNAP do have some sort of income source, but it's not a gainfully employed income source, right? Um, and there's probably a lot of things that contribute to that. Poverty does not mean just the amount of income coming into your household. We know that inflation causes um, you know, increased cost to gas for your transportation to and from work. Um, it causes problems with maybe even gainful um, with, with being able to have child care and adequate child care. And some states have a lot harder problem with that because of the ruralness um, in different areas. 
And there's also the cliff effect, which I think is the biggest contributor. So just because you have employment, um, it would take you several promotions to really have gainful employment, at which point there's a gap where maybe your third or fourth promotion kicks you off of some benefits, but not all. But the amount of income you're making does not mitigate the gap in that loss of those other benefits. You've actually lost more than you've gained with that um, promotion. So how are you supposed to sustain to get yourself to those next promotions where you're now ahead of the game? And the cliff effect is something that really, really impacts um, being able to be more um, self-sustaining um, without any type of public assistance. Um, but public assistance is there to offer support to all levels of individuals, regardless of, of that poverty, as long as they're within those uh, limits. Thank you, Carmela. We're going to take another break. And uh, if you're listening to the show right now and you're thinking to yourself, geez, I'm, I possibly my eligibility could be impacted here in the next year or so, or if you've got any other questions regarding any of these food assistance programs, phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it, carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program is the most commonly used food assistance program, and recent changes could mean less assistance for low-income residents. We're talking about these changes and getting a snapshot on food safety net programs aimed to help Native people. Call us with questions at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. And let's bring our third guest into the conversation now, Adelie Rivas. And Adelie, please describe your program there in Denver, Colorado. Who's your clientele and how specifically do you assist folks with food insecurity issues? Yes, thank you. So I work for Spirit of the Sun, and we are an indigenous women-led organization that focuses on the needs of the BIPOC community here in Denver, Colorado. Now, we primarily work with the indigenous community, and I specifically, my, my title is um, Food Share and Indigenous Agriculture Support, and I want to talk a bit about what that is. So, we, are, we start from the ground, um, essentially, because we have four farms um, here in Denver. Pull that up. Sorry, I'm like a little nervous. Um, so we we have four farms and oh, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. This is my first time on a radio show. Oh no, that's okay. <laughs> well, Adelie, how did you get into this line of work? It sounds really interesting. I actually started as a youth in our programs. So we have several programs focused on um, trying to really reconnect our youth with um, our indigenous food pathways. So last year I took the indigenous science and foodways leadership program. Um, and 
that introduced me to how to grow my own food and how to um uh, to, to help with food share. And so whenever I aged out of that program, I became um, an employee. Got it. Got it. And it sounds like you've got a, a really strong passion for helping to address the food needs of people there in Colorado. And, and what kind of produce do you folks provide there for your clients? Yeah. So um, that is culturally specific. Um, we have foods like um, that would oftentimes be considered weeds like purslane. Um, and I don't know the original name. I know that we call it wild spinach, but um, we also grow like Hopi black dye sunflowers, Hopi tomatoes. Um, let's see, uh, corn, beans and squash. Um, and all of those are native seeds from our seed library. Okay. Well, I know that's a criticism of some of the other types of food assistance programs out there is that they don't always meet the dietary needs of native people. So it sounds like that's a, a real focus of what you're doing there is making sure that these foods are, are not only culturally, but also dietary, uh, have good dietary factors uh, for, for your clients and especially the native folks that are using these services. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and another thing I wanted to mention was that we have a mycelium healing project where we actually inoculate each of our farms um, with mycelium that has the ability to eat microplastics and other chemicals that are known to um, pollute the earth um, so that, you know, our produce is not only, um, you know, culturally specific, sustainable, native it is um, free of chemicals and other pollutants that are carcinogenic and um, could cause disease inadvertently just from the soil that they're grown in. Okay. Now, helping people grow their own food, specifically low-income people who are experiencing food insecurity, how's that working out? Because it seems like it sounds like a great idea, but it also sounds like a lot of working parts to a program like that in terms of just getting getting the training there, getting the land and, and the seeds and, and everything else they need to, to grow successful crops. It is. It is a lot of work. Um, and we're, that is something we were working on because we do need more land um, and we do um, appreciate more funding and volunteers. And so I'm going to get a bit more into that. One of the things that we're looking to do in the future is to actually um, maintain and nurture a herd of bison. And um, we, at our food here, we order bison meat. And um, it's just not sustainable to keep on purchasing from ranchers who do not um, appreciate the, the, the need to, to really nurture um oh, my, oh, sorry my words um but you know it's very expensive and it's um not equitable to the bison themselves to be raised by non-native people who do not know how to respect them um and so we are trying to find land for for our bison herd and also for um to to grow more food for our food share program 
And Adley, working within these communities and meeting these individuals and, and families who need this food, what have you learned about food insecurity and hunger in these households? What What's the real takeaway that you've gotten? To be honest, I can attest to that on a personal level, having experienced um, homelessness here in Denver and also being a SNAP user. Um, when when I was offered a food share box, it drastically changed my um, accessibility to food. Because um, as you might know, SNAP does not pay out that much. And to sustain a family of three, two of them disabled, that's just, it's, it's not enough, and it's also very difficult when you live in an unhoused situation or you are disabled to find transportation to get to the grocery store or even to get to your job to earn the money needed to feed your family. And so the fact that our food share boxes, we deliver them personally, even to um, our unhoused individuals in the community or that they can just come to our office where we set up the food share out outside and they can see and be like, oh, can I have some food? It is very, very huge. And our crates are so huge that for me, they've eliminated the need for me to purchase groceries, which is something I do not say lightly. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay. And I, I want to bring Tony Stanger McLaughlin back into the conversation now, because Tony, listening to you, listening to Carmela, now listening to Adelie, I mean, I think the, the the big question on a lot of people's minds right now is is what is it going to take to solve food insecurity long term in Native communities? And listening now to Adelie in, in describing this wonderful program, how confident are you that programs like this and what you folks are doing up there in Washington are going to ultimately solve these issues long term? You've heard me mention some of our partners, our sister organizations that we work with, and included in, in a publication that we put out prior to COVID, actually, our founding CEO, Janie Hip, developed what we call our vision document, and it speaks to exactly what you're re referencing, a solution. And we see the work that the, the previous speaker was discussing in an urban setting, a need for both. We have a lot, a lot of uh, natives living off of reservation are in big um, cities, poply, population densities that exceed what's considered rural, but we also have a big portion of our population, our tribal population in very rural spaces. This vision document called Reimagining Native Food Economies, it is about building up regional agricultural infrastructure, a hub and sub-hub that serve producers, that serve communities, tribes, their tribal corporate arm, anything that's related to agriculture, we want to be a one-stop shop for these individuals to come to these um, educational institutions to partner with, other nonprofits to partner in different facets of the federal government. All of those things combined with our, our nonprofit partners, I think lead to a solution for the issues we face in COVID, including um, ac lack of access to food, uh, supply chain issues, and eliminating that by regionalizing food, food production and regionalizing food um, packaging and, and the sale of foods. Instead of into large corporations, we want to strengthen our communities to provide that service to not only okay. our tribal members, but everyone in the community. 
And Tony, please explain more. I mean, how is this hub different than what is is currently happening now? What does it solve exactly, the hub? So it's from beginning to end. If you want education on becoming and or being participating in agriculture, because there's a lot more to agriculture than, you know, a, somebody that might come to mind, uh, somebody in the field with some corn. There's a whole fishing component and forestry component to what's considered agriculture in the United States Department of Agriculture, but we also come from many creation stories related to our food and food systems. This will be a place where you can come to learn, but it's also a place where businesses and cooperatives can be structured, lending entities such as native CDFIs can be housed to provide immediate services. We want to be beginning to end whether that's large or small scale are traditionally based only for communities access. But it's similar to what we have in 638 Indian Health Service Clinics. They serve the greater community. If you're non-native, you come in and you pay your Medicaid insurance or your conventional private insurance, just like you would at any other medical facility. We envision this existing in this tribal setting for tribal governments to come together to operate these hubs and sub-hubs. And then any non-native that wants to use, you know, a grain silo or a, a transportation line that's associated with that hub will pay a, a cost. But it unburdens those, everyone in those spaces from having to do this by themselves and having to do entire infrastructure uh, by themselves. All right. Thank you, Tony. And uh, Carmela, back to you, listening to Tony describe enhanced infrastructure, uh, tribally run food hubs, agriculture support. Will these ideas work in New Mexico too, you think? Uh, they're actually very similar to being in parallel with the food um, initiative that the governor's task force has created. Um, and so it, it was really wonderful to hear that because I feel like we've been kind of uh, um, supported and, and validated in that some of these ideas will work. We have been looking at infrastructure um, access, how do we partner with the local availability of, of produce and meats, um, grains, cheeses. We've got all of that um, really at a, an abundance in New Mexico. So we're, we're rich in state in terms of the resources that we have and how do we leverage those to the best of ability and get them where they need to go. Um, the most complicated thing seems to be actually the delivery system of it. That gets very complex. Um, but I, I, I really support um, the plan that she just mapped out. And again, we are trying very similar things in New Mexico. And it sounds like uh, having native input with regard to these foods and, and, and some type of control, that's a, that's a vital piece of the equation as well, isn't it, Carmela? It's really, really critical to have that participation. Um, and that is something that we have not lacked. Um, New Mexico has a state tribal collaboration act, which I think is the only state legislation of its kind um, in the country. And it lays out very specifically what those collaborations look like, um, how we engage um, our native population, because that voice is really, really critical um, and making sure that um, we engage and, and give that platform um, is really the only thing that's the key to success. And Carmela, can you point to any tribal programs there in, in northern New Mexico or elsewhere that, that are, are really doing good work and, and you can highlight as examples of, of how some of these enhanced food systems can function? Wow, you're really making me think hard today, aren't you? <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I would say one of the, the more sustainable programs that have been really, really uh, 
um, helpful. Um, we have a Reach and Resili Resiliency Grant, which is additional monies we receive from the federal government. And basically, um, this helps us with our emergency food assistance program. So these are boxes of food that you receive once a month. Um, you can also receive food stamps at the same time or SNAP while you're um, receiving this. And this resiliency grant was specific to our tribal entities in New Mexico. And in our first round of grant funding, we really looked at the infrastructure and how do we expand into different um, tribal areas around the state. The second round of funding really focuses um, on making sure that those sites are sustainable. And right now we were able to um, have 29 sites across the native lands in New Mexico that are supporting this. And again, we really had to look at that infrastructure first, the pipeline that's there, and how we can really supplement with what is surrounding in those areas and really making it community specific. Um, and I think that's an effort that has been really successful. All right. Well, Carmela, I really appreciate your time today adding to our conversation. I also want to thank our other two guests on the line, Tony Stanger McLaughlin and, of course, Adelie Rivas for what's been a really, really pertinent update on food assistance programs available to Native Americans and also Alaska Native families, of course. And if you didn't get a chance to call into today's show or you have any other questions or comments with regard to this conversation, it does not have to end. You can always interact with us through social media. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. Also, check out our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. Uh, like the show, ask any questions, provide comments. We always encourage our listeners to engage with us, not only on the phones, but also via, via social media. It just makes it all work so well. when We've got multiple channels of communication with which to communicate with our many, many listeners across Native America. So thank you all again for joining us today. And tomorrow we're going to have a discussion on recent developments with efforts to address Missing and Murdered Indigenous People. Hope you'll tune in. Until then, have a great rest of your day. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. Whether it's financial help, education, or a certification, there are so many resources that any business can take advantage of. And none of them cost anything. Get help from the SBA. Do what I did and improve yourself and your business. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.